Good morning. Listen, before I even begin preaching, I just need to acknowledge something real quickly. So I did not come to know Jesus in this house or, you know, kind of in this church body greenhouse. I did become a disciple here at Greenhouse, and the, so much of my relationship with the Lord, my heart for nations, who I am, is because of multiple people in this room who've prayed for me, who have led me in wise counsel, who have fought for things, and recently a bunch of men and women in this room in the past couple years have fought for things that you thought even maybe the Lord was calling me to that I think I was scared to acknowledge. So, so much of who I am and even things coming out in this message today are largely because of so many of you, I could just spend the entire time naming you in this room who have discipled me. So I just wanted to thank you. I love this body, and so I'm really thrilled to, to bring the message and, and preach with you guys this morning. Like Pastor Mike <laughs> said, thank you. We are in a series, and we're talking about what it means to be a disciple and to live green. And so last week, Pastor Robbie, I loved his message. He set us up and he preached about that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And part of what Pastor Robbie's message was that Jesus established his authority, which is all authority. He established his authority because he was about to go and tell his disciples, his followers, what to do. He was about to tell the people who loved him what had to matter to them. So just a little bit of background, we're about to um, read and we're going to talk about what Jesus told his followers to do at the end of Matthew 28. This passage is commonly referred to as the Great Commission. Now we use the word commission in our modern language, but just other words for it would be like a commandment, which I know can sound heavy, like a command, but remember this is the guy who just established he had all authority in heaven and on earth. Or another word that I like is duty. So we're going to talk about our sacred and our great duty this morning. Now, Right, um, we're going to start Matthew 28. The couple chapters before, Jesus had been unjustly oppressed. He was killed. He was put up on a cross. He um, died, and his body was put in a tomb. Three days later, two women come to the tomb, and the tomb is empty. And so they're commissioned by an angel from heaven to go and proclaim the gospel. And so most scholars think that this, um, the Great Commission was preached by Jesus about eight days post the resurrection. So we are going to read um, Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. And I would invite you that if you're able to stand, if you would stand for the reading of God's word, we just do this around here because one, like our hearts and minds tend to follow our physical bodies, so we're just giving attention to God's word. Another thing I like about standing is that it reminds me of the great privilege that I and many of us in this room, that we have the Bible available to us in our heart language when so many of our brothers and sisters around the world do not have that. So we're going to read Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations nations. Jesus, help us this morning. We want to be not just hearers, but doers of your word. But Holy Spirit, I also pray that Jesus has said that his, we're supposed to take on his yoke, but his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So I pray that we do not take anything on this morning that is not the yoke of Jesus. But I also do pray that we would respond and God, we give you glory and we ask for help even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, can have a seat. So I came on staff almost nine years ago, 
and my kind of journey on staff was I did the greenhouse internship, which is now our greenhouse school of ministry. I think it's even better now than it was when I did it multiple years ago, but it changed my life. Pretty early on while I was in the internship, I was doing a focus on missions and I decided that I was gonna apply to grad school. And so I told my track director and you know, the people in authority over me. And then a couple months later, um, I got word one week that I'd actually gotten into my first, cho- my top school that I wanted to get into for the program. And that same week, I got offered a job on greenhouse staff. Um, and those closest to me were kind of like, well, Andrea, this is an easy decision. I remember I had lunch with my brother during making the decision. He's like, well, clearly you're going to go to this place. Like, I've heard you say you're excited to go to the school. I kind of want to get out of Florida. And everyone just thought it was a given. But I was just wrestling for a season. I, I really didn't know what I was supposed to do. And I don't know if maybe some of you are even in here right now and you feel that. Like, you really do not know what the right choice is. You have prayed, you fasted, and you just don't know what the right choice is. And it can kind of make you feel sick. And so I was just in a season for a while wrestling with this decision. But I didn't really tell the staff around me because I was like, okay, so if it's between ministry or like I was kind of applying to like a science medicine program. I was like, ministry and medicine, it, it's clear to like the church people what's going to matter. It's going to be ministry. That's what matters to God. And so I kept making myself ill, not talking to them. And one day I was on my way out to my car after the internship ended and a pastor stopped me. And I think he had actually seen, he was like, are you okay? You like, you know, don't look like you're doing so well. So I wound up telling him everything going on. And I ended it with like the caveat of like, I know, I know ministry is what matters to God and I'm praying and you know. And this is what he told me. He looked at me and he was like, Andrea, you belong to God. You are his kid. He loves you. The desires of your heart matter to God. Like your future matters to God. It's not just ministry. You are his. He loves you. And what matters to you matters to God. And and I ultimately decided that God was really calling me into ministry and to be here and be a part of staff at Greenhouse Church. But what marks me so much about that season that I remember is not just that decision to pursue ministry kind of instead of some science and medicine avenues, but was really just learning like, no, I, it's not just like I matter to God, like what matters to me matters to, matters to God. Like he loves me, I'm his. The Bible actually says that if you have called to Jesus, if you follow Jesus, that you are a child of God. And so what matters to you matters to God. Some of you in this room are those youth leaders in that video that you just watched, and you are giving your all trying to understand some languages and things that you don't really understand. You're giving your Wednesday nights and other time to try to disciple the next generation to hear the voice of God, and that matters. And some of you in this room are, you're trying to hold on for dear life to finish PhDs. Some of you are waiting on, or you're starting new relationships, you're in your relationships, and you're praying to God to move. And all of that matters. Like, that really does matter deeply to God. In a relationship, though, in a healthy relationship, there is a mutual caring. It can't just be that what matters to us matters to God. It also has to be that what matters to God matters to us. Um, I, st- when I first started dating my boyfriend, Dan, I had not seen almost any of the Marvel movies. I don't think I had seen any of them. I have now seen every single Marvel movie, including all those like spin-off TV shows on Disney Plus or whatever. So like what matters to Dan matters to me. And it's it's mutual too. Dan has seen a lot of animal documentaries and movies where there are rabbit protagonists because that matters to me. And so that matters to Dan. And so it is mutual caring. What matters to us matters to God. And so what matters to God has to matter to us. And church, Matthew 28. And the whole bulk of scripture between Genesis to Revelation makes it really clear that all nations matter to God. 
And my concern this morning even, that I just feel such an urgency to bring this word, is that I'm concerned that there's something that matters so deeply to the heart of God, and it doesn't always matter to us. And it doesn't always naturally matter to me. Because I believe that the church has effectively preached, go get a heart for God, go get a heart for God, but I don't know that the church has effectively preached, go get a heart for the nations. And I'm telling you, I know that I know that I know that if you get a heart for the nations, you are going to know your God in ways you've never known him before. I promise you that that is true. A couple months ago, a couple months ago, I was having a, um, a kind of dry season with the Lord. And if you've been walking with him for a while, you, you know what this is. And if you're new walking with him, prepare for it. It doesn't mean God doesn't love me. I was, having, I was seeking time with him daily, but I, just, I was not feeling close to him at all. And so one of the things I do to keep my heart soft for the nations is I follow missionaries on social media or missions organizations. And so there's this one missionary that God has used drastically to affect my heart. He's preached here before. His name is Dick Brogdon. And so he was doing like an Instagram live in February, and I was in the middle of this dry season with the Lord. And so I got on the Instagram live and I watched Dick and he is in the Middle East, he's in the middle of the desert and he's sharing about our Arab brothers and sisters coming to the Lord and being persecuted and loving Jesus and proclaiming the gospel no matter what it costs them. And church, my heart, I had to get off the call early. It was a great call. I had to go up to my room, I opened my Bible, I sought the Lord and I just experienced the love of Jesus. There was just a softness and an intimacy that I had not had. At that point, I think it was almost like months on end. Every time I line my heart up to God's heart, God's missionary heart, I draw closer to him. And if you love Jesus, you are going to care what he cares about. And Jesus loves the poor. And he cares about educational inequity in our city and in our nation based on what zip code that you're born into. And he cares about your heart to want to use your mind fully for science and business and creative ventures. And he cares about your desire for a spouse. His heart is big enough for all of those things but he also cares about the nations and he actually requires that you and I do as well. And that's because you and I and everyone watching online right now that we were created to live our life for the nations. And we do this, we live our life for the nations because the Great Commission, what we're preaching about for a few weeks in here, the Great Commission is not a general command to make as many disciples as possible. The Great Commission is actually a specific command to make disciples among every single nation. I'm going to say that one more time because this idea has affected me deeply. The Great Commission is not a general command to make as many disciples as possible. It is actually a specific command to make disciples among every single nation. So Jesus did not say to make as many disciples as possible, and we say that a lot. We say, go make disciples, and that is part of the Great Commission, but it is an incomplete sentence. We are quoting an incomplete sentence, a half idea. The Great Commission is not something that just some of us are called to. It is not just something that some, oh, I have a missionary calling me. No, sorry, this isn't the Bible. This is to everyone who follows Jesus, that we are called to make disciples where we're at, but that is part of the Great Commission. It is not the Great Commission in its totality. We are called to make disciples among all nations. Jesus died specifically for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, which is why Jesus commanded his church all of the church to go specifically to every nation, tribe, and tongue. 
Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus, he's saying these words, remember, scholars think it's about eight days post the resurrection. Jesus has literally and actually raised from the dead. I need you to know that if you do not follow Jesus in here, we're so welcome. I'm so honored that you would be here this Sunday. Jesus literally raised from the dead. And upon raising from the dead, he establishes, he tells his followers that he has all authority on heaven and on earth. And then he says these words to hit them. I think these words must have been burned in the, disciple, in the disciples' hearts. Can you imagine, A, no one has ever loved you like Jesus loves you. No one has ever, the disciples had never experienced the love like they had from Jesus. On top of that, he just raised from the dead. These were, and this is what he said, these words were burned on their hearts. And my question, church, is are these words still burned on the hearts of his disciples today? Are they still burned on my heart? Because I hear a lot of things like this. I hear, Andrea, I'm called to the poor, or I'm called to, for 29-year-olds to hear the voice of God, or I'm called to business leaders, or I'm called to this. And all of that is yes and amen. Those things matter. They are biblical. They have eternal value. And yes, church, I, I cheer you on with that. But the thing is that you are also called to nations. You are called to help bring the gospel to every nation, tribe, and tongue. There's no, the, the scripture doesn't leave any room outside of that reality for all of us. And so how do we even do that? Because I think sometimes I hear that frustration of like, okay, go and take disciples of all nations. Are you asking every single one of us in this room to up and move overseas? Let me say something right now before I even get into my first major point. This is not a sermon where like you are a second class citizen if you do not go overseas. This is a sermon for us to live our lives for all nations, which is some of us, that's where we're at, some of us, that's going, but there's no second-class citizen of like, oh, missionaries are like, you know, the heroes of the faith or something. So I'm going to talk about how all of us can live for all nations. Point number one is that the Great Commission is for all nations. So Matthew 28, going back to the verse we're looking at, verse 19, make disciples of all nations. Now, Matthew was written originally in the Greek, and so those three words, they really trusted me with a huge sermon. They're like, you have three words that you can preach on. <laughs> so of all nations, in the Greek originally, the words panta, ta, ethne. Go ahead and say that. Practice some Greek this morning. Panta, ta, ethne. And so, pant, so that word ethne is the word that gets translated a lot to nations, but the word ethne means ethnicities. And so it's not that nations is wrong, but it's actually not as specific as the original Greek and the language that Jesus was probably preaching in. Most scholars believe that the word people group is actually closest to the word um, ethne. So the word in English would be people group. Go and make disciples of all people groups. Because Jesus's desire and command was that every single distinct people group on the planet had the opportunity to know him. Now that word people group, don't get caught up on that. It simply means like a group that shares similar culture and language so that ideas are easily transferable. So that's all that a people group is. They share similar culture and language so that ideas are easily transferable. All authority on heaven and earth is given to Jesus and this is what he tells us to do. He says, go and make disciples of every single distinct people group on earth. The Great Commission will be complete when disciples have been made and churches have been multiplied among every single people group. And this is what every church and every Christian is called to do. 
So what's even happening with this? Jesus came, he rose from the dead about 2,000 years ago. How has the church, how have we and all of our brother and sister churches right now and throughout history, how have we progressed throughout the Great Commission? So we're gonna look at just kind of some current day like progress on the Great Commission right now. So right now, there are over 3 billion people that are currently unreached by the gospel. And that means that they are on a road to never hearing the name of Jesus or the truth of his gospel one time. Now we talk a lot about access or inequity around here, and let me be clear, the reason we talk about that is because it is clear in scripture that that matters to God. And gospel availability and access is also something that matters to God. Jesus shed his blood and died so that every single distinct people group on the earth could have access to his gospel. He was that serious about it. So there are currently three billion people, that's about 40% of the world today, that's living without access to the gospel. Now that's a major problem in every way and we're gonna spend some time unpacking it, but I've used the word unreached a few times this morning and that can kind of be a churchy word, maybe you've heard it before, so I just wanna break that down real quickly. Unreached does not mean lost or lost if you think of it as like not a Christian. So let me explain it like this. My neighbor is lost and the man in Iraq is lost. There's no difference in lostness and there's no difference in value to God. God does not celebrate great. There's not a bigger party in heaven after the man in Iraq comes to, you know, the, comes to follow Jesus than my neighbor. They're both his kids. The difference is my neighbor has a ton of churches around him. He lives in Gainesville. He has a ton of Christians around him. I'm his neighbor. He has access. The man in Iraq, there's probably no one around him that he'll even come across in his life to know. There's no churches and there are no Christians. He won't ever hear the gospel because no one around him even knows the gospel to tell him. Unreached means that people do not have access, that we are just talking about it. They can't hear it because no one around them knows the gospel. Unreached people and places are where Jesus is largely unknown and the church is relatively insufficient to make Jesus known without outside help. Okay, so we're going to go, if you're into numbers, get really excited for the next five minutes. If you're not, I promise it's just going to be a short period of time, but we're going to look and see what the current state of our world looks like right now. We have some slides to help. So current world population is about 7.75 billion people. And those 7.75 billion people are made up of about 17,000 distinct people groups. Remember, people group just means group of people where ideas are um, easily transferable. Of those 17,000 people, 3 billion of them are unreached, they do not have access. And those three billion people are made up in about 7,000 distinct people groups. Okay, so let's kind of like break this down and make it a little bit more real. If you look around you this morning and you kind of see the five people, you're not being weird, you can look around, I'm telling you to, the five people that are closest to you, of those five people around you, if this is the world population, two of them do not have access to the gospel. Or to make it maybe a little bit clearer, so this room, so if, 40% in this room, so from this hallway over, all of you have access to the gospel. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't need to make disciples. All of you do not know Jesus. There are lost people over here, but you have access. There are Christians or churches in your life. In this portion of the room, you don't have access to the gospel. That means that unless something changes, you will be born, you will live, and you will die, and you will never have the chance to hear even what Jesus did once, much less like deny him or accept him. You don't have the chance. Now, the two things that it takes, 
That's the two main things that it's gonna take to change the, t- the statistic for this part of the room are people and dollars. And let me be really clear when I say people. I mean missionaries sent in humble, teachable ways where they're gonna be sensitive to culture and they're gonna work with and under local church leaders, okay? But they are gonna go. Remember that unreached means that they're insufficient for the gospel to proliferate there without outside help. So we have to send people, we have to send dollars. So how are we doing with that? The number of missionaries working among unreached people groups of all of our missionaries sent are approximately 3%. So this part of the room, we're sending 3% of our global missionary force to reach them. And our dollars, how are we doing with that? So it takes people and it takes finances. Of all of the mission dollars given worldwide, 1% on average goes to this part of the room. Until a few years ago, Americans on average spent more on Halloween costumes for their pets than they did to reach the 40% of the world that doesn't have access to the gospel. It's almost like Jesus knew this was going to be a problem when he said, pray for the laborers because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And this is why I said at the beginning, I'm not trying, I know this is heavy church, I realize that, but that's why I'm saying the burden on my heart is like, do we care about what Jesus cares about? I'm concerned that there's something that matters deeply to the Lord and it doesn't naturally matter deeply to me, that I just live my life over here and I'm not even thinking about this portion of the world that does not have access to know who Jesus is and to follow him. So practically, unless something changes right now, this is current day statistics, these are all within the last two years, unless something changes, over seven billion people will be born, they will live, they will die, and they will never hear the name of Jesus one time. They will never hear that Jesus died for them. They will never hear what Ruthie just said, that their sins can be forgiven and they can be healed unless something changes. And we are sending 3% of our missionaries and 1% of our dollars, of our mission dollars to reach them. I was in South Asia, Southeast Asia a few years ago, visiting some missionaries that you all support over there. I was over there both to encourage them and to work with them. And also, honestly, I go on trips to make sure that your mission dollars are being spent well and effectively. And so I was over there. It's a predominantly Buddhist country, close to the gospel. It's illegal to convert someone or share Jesus, to make someone a Christian there. And so I got there, and the missionaries were like, hey, there's a young woman about your age, and she really wants you to come and pray for her. I was like, oh, okay, cool. So, but they, they were like being really specific. It was weird. They were texting a lot. Like, we have to go at a very specific time and be very careful And I was like, I'm just going to go pray for her. Like, what's the big deal? So this young woman, she was in her late 20s when she started following Jesus because she had never heard the the story of Jesus before. She never heard that Jesus died for her. But then missionaries, a church plant that you all have helped make possible in in this country, in this area, they shared the gospel with her. And so she started following Jesus. But her father is a leader in the country, found out that she started following Jesus. So... Um, he decided that he would lock her in her room on, from Friday night to Sunday night every single weekend because he knew that the underground church met on the weekend, so he didn't want her to be able to get out to go to the underground church. On top of that, some of her neighbors had found out that she followed Jesus, and so they poisoned her uh, water supply, and she was sick. And you all have helped. Even your mission dollars have gone and helped care for her. So I show up at her door. We had to go to a really specific time. She lets us inside. She locks the door. We go back into her back room, and she shut like she had physical shutters. So she shuts all the shutters, and she tells me, she's like, hey, don't pray too loudly because my neighbors, they could hear. So we pray for her. And this is what she asked us to pray for, church. She asked me to pray for her that she would be bold, 
even in the face of persecution, to share the gospel with her neighbors. And she asked me to pray that more people would come to that country so that people there wouldn't have to be in their late 20s like she was to, for, for their first opportunity to hear the name of Jesus. Because she doesn't want that for her village. She doesn't want that for her country. That same trip, a few days later, I was in a car with the missionaries that you guys have helped send there, um, send there. And we're on this long kind of winding road. And it's a beautiful, beautiful mountainous village. And the missionary's like, hey, Andrea, there are a bunch of mountains. They're like, do you see that village like on the top of that mountain there? And then that one on the top of the mountain there. And also that one and that one. So it's like four or five villages that they point out. And they're like, in all of recorded history that we can find, no one has ever gone to these villages and told them about Jesus, has never told them the gospel. Would you please pray that the church would send more missionaries here because our team is too small. Even though these villages are only a couple of days drive for us, our team is too small. We cannot do this in a lifetime. We need more people. And I realize that this is really heavy. And so I think a natural question to wrestle with right now that is fair and I've wrestled with too is like, did Jesus even put this on us? Like, this is a lot, guys. Like, this is, the, this is the reality of, like, there are people in this part of the room right now who, as I'm speaking, they do not have the chance to hear Jesus one time unless something changes. Like, is that really on me? Because the whole thing I was praying earlier, like, Jesus is, he says his yoke is easy and his burden is light, and we're supposed to take on his yoke. So, looking at that, I think a good question, a way to answer that question is to look and see, well, how did people respond who heard the Great Commission? What did they go and do? How did they understand this? So let's look at the lives of the disciples. Of the disciples that heard the Great Commission, 11 of the 12 of the disciples scattered to different nations around the world. The majority of them were martyred and killed for sharing their faith among all nations. Now, the disciples weren't stupid. I feel like the far more strategic thing would, to do would have been for them to have all stayed together. I think they would have been a, a lot more effective of building up more disciples if the Great Commission was just a call to make as many disciples as possible. It seemed that they had a strategy to live their life for all nations, for all specific people groups. And let's look at the life of Paul. Now, Paul did not hear the Great Commission directly from Jesus, but he's easily one of the most influential leaders of the early church. Paul says something really interesting in Romans 15. Paul's in Corinth, which is a city that he had gone to and he had planted the church, and so there were Christians there, and Paul says that there's no more work for him to do in Corinth. So what does that mean? Does that mean that there were, Corinth was 100% Christian, that everyone there was living in harmony, there was no poor, everyone was getting saved, everyone was getting healed, there were no fights or bickering, there was no oppression or injustice? No, there's no time in recorded history that Corinth was 100% Christian. But Corinth had churches and Christians that Paul and others had helped plant there. And so Paul said, there's no more work for me to do here. I need to get to Spain, because Spain at that time had zero Christians and zero churches. So Paul's like, no, my work in Corinth is done. There are way more disciples to be made, and there are people do that. I'm gonna go to Spain because the gospel isn't accessible there. There are people in Spain who right now do not have the chance to hear the gospel. It seems that Paul knew exactly what he was doing in response to the Great Commission. It seems that Paul and the disciples understood that the Great Commission was to gather believers from every known people group of their day. And they were committed to living their lives for the nations. And I want to say something too. If you read a lot of Paul in the New Testament, Paul wanted to go to the nations, but what Paul really wanted was God. 
Paul wanted to know his God and he wanted to be close to his God and he was willing to do anything that the Lord told him. And Paul, I think Paul knew that he would never know his God, that every time he lined up his heart to God's missionary heart, got to God's missionary's heart, that he would experience God in ways he never would otherwise. I think that Paul knew that. I sat in a meeting of uh, disciples a few weeks ago, men and women who love, love, love the Lord. And one of the people, one of the men said this. He said, I'm called to my family. They're my mission field. And to that, I say yes and amen. That is biblical. That is true. If you have a family, you're a parent. That is the call of God on your life. But that is also true of every single person who has a family. So who is going to go after this 40% of the world who lives right now with zero access to the gospel? Jesus said to take on his yoke and that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Church, the nations are his yoke. You cannot read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. His heart is for the nations. He burns for the nations. He, all throughout scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, he longs for the nations to know him, for his glory to be spread among the nations so that people may know him, so they may have the chance to respond. I believe that we have gotten away from the biblical precedent of living our lives for the nations. This is not an extreme, some special ones are called situation. This is the great commission and this was the normal behavior of every follower of Jesus in the early church. And I believe it should be the normal behavior of everyone in the church today. I believe that we are called to live our lives for the nations, that that is the call on my life and that is the call on your life. And I believe that because point number two, so point number one, the Great Commission is for all, all nations. And point number two, all nations is for all of us. One of my favorite quotes. There is a person who lives zealously for the spread of the gospel among the nations, and they are not a Christian. That, or they, sorry, and they are not a missionary. I ruined my favorite quote. There is a person <laughs> who lives zealously for the spread of the gospel among the nations, and they are not a missionary. That person is a follower of Jesus Christ. David Platt said that. He's a pastor, huge heart for the missions. So, and I want to say this because I know I just saw, like, said some really heavy stuff. I do see this happening throughout our church. I see it in people and all of you. Like Mabel Kardec, I don't know if she's here or not, but she leads our Spanish translation ministry. Mabel speaks Spanish, and so she came to me a couple years ago and was like, Andrea, I want the Spanish-speaking nations to have access to the gospel. I want to start Spanish translation at Greenhouse. But Mabel isn't even content with that. Since then, she's come to me multiple times. She's like, Andrea, we have to find Mandarin speakers and Portuguese speakers and Arabic speakers. We need need the gospel to be accessible to the nations that we have here. That's just one of you. I see it. I see you guys, you guys here. Bria and Wesley and the International Friendship Group, they are leaders in our church. Adam and Sophie Brandon, they open up their homes and their time every single week to invite international families and students into their lives. You guys bring them to church. We have Easter celebrations. I see that happening. I see it happening with your greenhouse missionary, Blake, who's um, preparing right now and you guys are supporting him. He's trying to get to the Middle East in January to, um, to live long-term among people groups that are known to despise and reject Christians. And Blake isn't waiting to make disciples there. Blake is making disciples here. The same thing with Hannah Hooper that you guys have sent to Thailand. The same thing with the Helvies who what you guys sent to Haiti and they're back here now and they still blow up my phone all the time with like, this is what we have to do for the Haitian church. This is how we have to serve the Haitian leaders. And please notice that of all those heroes I just told you and many of you who are doing things I don't even have time to, to list, 
Those are not all people going. They're people who, whether they're here or whether they're there, they are going to live their life. They're like, God, I, will, I know what your great commission is, and I will live my life for the nations, regardless of where I go. A missionary, David Sill, said this. I really like it. He said, some of us are senders, some of us are goers. Neither is more important than the other, because neither is possible without the other. The thing that I see in the, uh, the Helbies and Mabel and the International Friendship Group leaders and Blake is that they are making extravagant sacrifices to bring God's goodness and presence to all nations. And that extravagance will look different in different people and at different seasons of life. I think sometimes one of the biggest things Satan will do will be like, well, that person next to you is doing this and you're only doing that and it's comparison. What is extravagant for your life? God has called us to make sacrifices for his name to go among the nations. That, don't compare yourself to the person going or the person staying. Make sacrifices and say, Lord, whatever it takes, I will live my life for people to know you. And I have to go into something and just say that the urgency of this is not theoretical. There is an eternal reality for people who do not know Jesus. And I know that hell is not fun or trendy to talk about, but the Bible makes it clear there is no opportunity for salvation outside of Jesus Christ. We must get the gospel there. I hear people say a lot, Romans 10, 13 is a popular voice or popular verse. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But I don't hear them follow it up with the verses that follow immediately after that. How will they call on the one in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe and if they have not heard? And how will they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how will someone preach unless they are sent. Going and proclaiming our imperative, church. So what do we do to make sure that these billions of lives, are, their eternities are secured? These villages in Southeast Asia that I shared about, that at this point I checked, no one has still gone there. I literally had a phone call to the missionary this week. No one has still gone there. What do we do to make sure like the entire Wayu tribe, an unreached people tribe in Venezuela, what do we do to make sure that their eternities are secure? We have to live our lives for the nations. And I wanna be really vulnerable with you guys for a minute. I have felt called to missions for a long time. And in case you were confused, I wasn't flown in from Tibet to share this message this morning. I am here, I'm in Gainesville, and I feel at peace. I am trying to live my life and I fail a lot. So those of you who know me know this, but I'm trying to steward my life for my voice, my finances and my home to send people to welcome. There's so many, like the nations are among us here to welcome them into my home. When I have a day off and I'm sometimes at breakfast and I see a group of women with hijabs, I'm like gonna go over there and introduce myself and sit down and be awkward and like try to make friends with them. I'm trying to live my life for the nations. And I fail all the time, but I can tell you that for the most part, there's a peace. But there's always the fighting for the open hands, and that's what I think we're all called to. And I have to fight for this, and I have to have conversations of, Lord, if you, if you tell me the one-way ticket, I'll go. And it gets harder. Honestly, the longer that I live and the more I'm like, oh, well, no, it's like all these things are happening. It gets harder, but I, you have to fight for those open hands. And let me tell you, I've been overseas. You have to fight for the open hands if you go overseas too. The Lord may call you back or he may call you to another place. It's just that, Lord, we will do anything we will do whatever you tell us. We'll open our homes. We'll invite our Buddhist neighbor. We'll invite our coworker. We'll, you know, maybe you're going to start the Mandarin translation ministry, or we'll go. Whatever you tell us, Lord, we'll do. We have to live our life for the nations. Um, a few weeks ago, one of the pastors on staff, Pastor Matt, he had an announcement that he wanted to make to the staff. And it was interesting because it was almost like just semi-correction to the staff. But he got up, and this is how he said, gather all staff, and he started like this. He's like, hey, guys. 
something's been on my heart, um, and there's some changes coming I want to share with you. And so then he shares the announcement. And so after the announcement, a few of the staff members were like, that's it? We thought you were going to tell us that you and Tracy and the girls were moving overseas to go be missionaries. <laughs> and that's not the orchard's plan right now. <laughs> I don't believe in their life. But that really struck me because Matt and Tracy Ulrich and their girls, they live their life for the nations in such a way that those closest to them are half expecting at any point they may just up and go. Or, or maybe they'll stay here, but who knows? Because they're going to live their life for the nations. And that's what I want to be true of my life. I don't know that really people make plans two years out, but I want you, if you want to make plans with Andrea two years out, you're like, I don't know that I can do that because I don't know where Andrea will be. She's going to make disciples of the nations here or she's going to go. Whatever God calls her to do, she's going to do. That's what I want to be said of me and that's what I want to be said of all of us. So how do we even do that? Maybe by now you're still really bothered by this personage, you know, this part of the room that's currently... And this, Jesus can do eternal work, but practically nothing has actually changed for the gospel to get to them so far. Maybe you're burdened by that. Maybe you're like, okay, Andrea, I, I, I'll do it. Whether I stay here or whether I go, I'll live for my life for the nations. The statistics are enough. The stories are enough. I heard about that virtual trip to Thailand. I'm going to sign up. I think that would be a good next step for me to be softened my heart for the nations. <laughs> it would be. Um, I'm going to open my home before the end of this month, and I'm going to invite someone from another nation into my house, and I'm going to share a meal with them, and I'm going to share the gospel with them. I'm going to do it. The stories are enough. The statistics are enough. I'm really bothered by this number. I'll do it. They can't be why we live our life for the nations. We live our life for the nations because, my last point, Jesus is worthy of all nations. You cannot do this for them. People will uh, despise you and reject you and hate you. There have literally been missionaries that have gone to unreached tribes and they have been killed before they ever had the chance to preach the gospel. And then their wives and their children have followed up and tribes have come to know Jesus. They never died for you. Why should you go for them? But someone has died for you. And that is Jesus and Jesus is deserving of his glory among all nations. Jesus says that he wants every single people group. He died for every single group to have access to his gospel. And so that is why we must do this. <laughs> compassion is good, but it is not enough. If you are like, I will do something based on compassion, please do not. Please just go home, pray fast, and sit on it. Because listen, Jesus was moved by compassion to do things for people, but it was always secondary out of a place of worship to his God. We go to the nations, we live our life for the nations because Jesus is worthy of all nations. And I'm gonna, the last scripture that we're gonna read is gonna be Revelation. So we're gonna turn to Revelation chapter five. And listen, if you're kind of new to the Bible and reading the Bible, Revelation can get a weird rap. It's kind of a lot of imagery and it can sound strange. And Revelation chapter five, Revelation is just a book of the Bible and it talks about things that are going to happen. God gave a vision to one of his leaders, John. And so it's particularly in this vision in chapter five, there's a scroll. And the scroll contains the purposes of the Lord for the earth, but the scroll is sealed. And so John is, John, and it says there are some elders around him, they're really burdened. They're to the point of weeping because the scroll is sealed and there's no one there who's worthy to enroll the scroll that holds the purposes of God. But then all of a sudden, resurrected Jesus comes on the scene and he is introduced as a lamb that has been slain. 
And it says that he is worthy to unroll the scroll. So we're going to pick it up in Revelation 5, verse 9. And this is John and the elders, and this is their response to Jesus the Lamb. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you are slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I'm going to jump down to verse 12. And it says, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might and power forever and ever. Church, this is where it's going. This is where everything is going. This is happening. Jesus has ransomed by his very own blood those from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so my question, just as much to me as to you, is are we going to be a part of it? Are we going to be a part of doing whatever it takes? I don't care if you go. I don't care if you stay. The win is will you do whatever it takes for all nations to have access to the gospel, not even because they're worth it. Sorry, guys, no offense to you sitting in this group, but because he is worth it. He was slain for them. He was slain for every nation, tribe, and tongue. One of the things I do to keep my heart soft towards the nations, because it naturally, I naturally do not care what God cares about. I'm the missions director, so God help me. One of the things I do is I like to read missionary biographies. And there's this group of missionaries called the Moravians in the early 1700s. They're kind of modern day, like mothers and fathers of a lot of modern day mission movements. And so the Moravians understood that the Great Commission was not just to make as many disciples as possible, but to make disciples among all nations. They were pretty obsessed with getting the gospel to all people groups. And there was this one people group that they learned about. It was a uh, people group in Africa that had been sold into slavery in the West Indies. And the Moravians found out in the entire history um, of the, since Jesus had died, that this people group, no one had ever gone and shared Jesus with them. So they kept trying to get the gospel to them, kept trying and failing, kept trying and failing. So finally, two young men who are single, names are John and Johan. And they're like, we know what we'll do. We are going to try to sell ourselves into slavery so that we can get to the West Indies and we can share the gospel with this people group. And so it's recorded that John and Johan, they boarded a ship to head to Denmark. They were in Germany. They boarded a ship to head to Denmark to try to make their case to get to the West Indies. So their family and their group of the Moravians gathered on the shore. And it's recorded that John and Johan, they boarded the ship. And as the ship is pushing off and they're leaving their families, they're leaving the only life they ever knew in order to get the gospel to this people group, that they raised their fists in the air. And they said, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And church, I'm not asking you to get on a ship. I'm not asking you to even go overseas. I'm just saying, may this be true of our life. May this lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. listen, I want to take a minute right now. If you have never followed Jesus, if you are not a child of God, if you have never called to him, if you have never turned to him, I have one thing to say to you this morning. This has been burning so deep in my heart. I've been praying for you all week. You are his reward. 
You are the reward of his suffering. Do you have any idea how much he loves you? Do you have any idea how much he matters to you? The king of the world loves you. He gave his life for you and you matter to him. And he is asking you to follow him today. So we're gonna get in just a minute to what do we do to reach the nations and all that. But I wanna talk to you right now. If you would like to turn to him, I'm gonna give you this opportunity even right now. If you guys would just, if everyone would just go ahead and bow their heads and close their eyes. And if you want to follow Jesus, you can, maybe you can just repeat the prayer. You can say a prayer like this and say, Jesus, I love you. I, um, I turn from my sin and I choose you. Be my Lord and be my savior. And maybe you even want to thank him with something like, thank you that I am your reward. You are his reward. So for the rest of us, what do we do? What do we do for this if we follow Jesus? I've completely... I'm asking you, church, that we live our life for the nations, that we don't compare ourselves to the person who may be going or staying, that we will do anything for the lamb that was slain to receive the reward of his suffering.